Hello. This is the first of a pair of podcasts and episode 16 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. You understand me not that tell me so. I do not speak of flight, of fear, of death. But dare all imminence that gods and men address their dangers in. Hector is gone. Who shall tell Priam so, or Hecuba? Let him that will a screech shall I be called, go into Troy, and say there, Hector is dead. There is a word will Priam turn to stone. Make wells and Niobes of all the maids and wives, cold statues of the youth, and in a word, scare Troy out of itself. But march away. Hector is dead. There is no more to say. Say it, you vile, abominable tents. Let's proudly bite upon our Phrygian plains. Let Titan rise as early as he dare. I'll through and through you. And thou great-sized coward. No space of earth shall sunder our two hates. I'll haunt thee like a wicked conscience still that moldeth goblins swift as frenzy's thoughts. Strike a free march to Troy, with comfort go. Hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. That was the final soliloquy from one of Shakespeare's later plays, the plays in which he started breaking all of his rules called Troilus and Cressida. Troilus and Cressida is essentially Shakespeare's fan fiction about the Trojan War, the tales told in the Iliad by Homer. And what's fascinating about Troilus and Cressida to me is the abandonment of Shakespeare's syntax, the abandonment of Shakespeare's use of the hero's journey or the use of the hero's journey gone wrong and its full-fledged glory in the form of tragedy. For instance, in Hamlet, we get this final resolve. All the pieces that they put on the table seem to play out accordingly for one big dramatic tragedy. But what's really interesting about this is Shakespeare accidentally invented modernism hundreds of years before modernism existed. Now, to dissect that statement, one must now realize what modernism is and understand the origins of modernism. And the origins of modernism stem from World War I. Now, let's take a look at the world before World War I. This was the height of monarchy. Every European country, with the exception of, I believe, France, and I believe Czechoslovakia, was under a monarch. So despite the French Revolution 100 years prior, sort of putting a bit of fear in the world of monarchy. 
It had been restored to its former, former glory and more. France oddly being the only country of the major players without ever since the Franco-Prussian War, the Prussian victory resulting in the removal of Napoleon III from the crown and making France a republic. Now, in terms of warfare, for the longest time, war was waged in a very ceremonial, honorable way. And I joke about this a lot with people, but there was a war every five minutes, <laughs> practically. Uh, the, the Swedes are going at it with the Danes, the Prussians are going at it with the Austrians, or Spanish with the French, or the British with... Take your pick. Honestly, take your pick. And there'd be a little skirmish for a couple years, and one side would win, one side would lose, one side would get the land, glory, and honor, and bragging rights, and then they'd reset, and someone else would do it again somewhere else. It was really that simple. And many people were going to battle with a very ornate battle uniform, and they're battling for glory. And there's this hero's journey involved, and there's traditional tactics still involved. The writing on the wall for mechanized warfare, though, came in a couple of places. The Boer War, from 1899 to 1902 in South Africa, between the British Empire and the joint forces of what was called the Boer Republic and the Orange Free State, which on paper was a war waged by the British to end slavery, the last countries uh, in the world officially using slavery for their farming-based economy, which was the Orange Free State and the Boer Republic, which are basically Afrikaan. Um, these are Dutch, Af African-born Dutchmen uh, by ethnicity. But really, the Brits found out that there were diamonds in that area, so they wanted dominion. Complete and total dominion over the area that is now the Republic of South Africa. And there was quite a bit of guerrilla warfare waged on the part of the waged on the part of the Orange Free State and the Boer Republic. And the British Army actually had to introduce more and more mechanized warfare to eventually swarm and overwhelm the Boer Republic and Orange Free State. In addition to this, a Meiji Restoration leading Japan into a westernized and mechanized age saw their capture of the Korean Peninsula and the Manchurian region just north of the Korean Peninsula uh, with the Koreans really the Koreans and the Manchurians not standing a chance. So you had mechanized warfare beginning to emerge on the wings of the world stage. Now the Wright brothers in the early 1900s as well invented the airplane. Now that accelerated quite a bit within 10 years to then have the biplane actual fighter planes for the first time. The Germans created the U-boat. Really wasn't much of a submarine, but it was a boat that could be submersible. And that was certainly a game changer in the world of naval combat. And you had a bunch of empires now in this height of monarchy that were itching to go at it. They almost went to war in 1902. Um, there was quite a bit of rioting in Russia that led to Tsar Nicholas adjusting his rule into creating a lot of government programs um, to 
essentially in a bunch of different ways raise people's quality of life and raise people's skill set so they can help themselves achieve a higher quality of life. When you start to take a look at what Tsar Nicholas was instituting in the Russian Empire, he was probably the last Tsar who deserved to be assassinated as he was. Because in 1917, in February, there was a Menshevik Revolution, the Democratic Revolution of Russia, and then came Red October, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Revolution, which created the Soviet Union through their victory, the assassination of Tsar Nicholas and his entire family, including his young daughters. Now, most of Europe was related amongst these monarchies, yet they were still itching for what was quite literally a mass-scale, unnecessary, in-family pissing contest. There's a quote by Kaiser Wilhelm of the German Empire saying that if, he's, if him and Tsar Nicholas's and King Edward's uh, aunt slash mother, which was Queen Victoria, were still alive, that she never would have allowed World War I to happen, and that is very likely true. But Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, an heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne was assassinated, striking a catalyst of a bunch of declarations of war, more so by the nature of honoring alliances, the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance, the Triple Entente being France, the UK, and the Russian Empire, and the Triple Alliance being the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. One Muslim contingent in the mix of the big players. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Triple Alliance. The Ottomans came later. Triple Alliance at the time was Italy. They flip flopped in 1916. Yeah. So that's setting the stage for for World War One. Now, a lot of folks were still gauging European warfare by the nature of the Franco-Prussian War, the most recent major war that took place between two European countries for dominion over a piece of Europe. Uh, the German Empire gained Alsace-Saint-Lorraine. Um, my French is terrible. We're working on that. But the general understanding of combat was that they were going to fight with traditional tactics there was going to be a quick winner, someone was going to be happy, someone was going to be unhappy, and have, have that be that. The war had mechanized quite a bit. There were tanks, there were airplanes, there were submarines, there was barbed wire, there was mustard gas. There was the trench warfare and traditional tactics that did not match the call of advanced warfare. This looks like a lot of pointless bloodshed. And in the case of the Western Front, a stalemate that lasted pretty much the entirety of the war until a very interesting individual came along. But, so at the end of World War I, you also had communism. So Russia exited in 1917, through in part to both the Menshevik and the Bolshevik Revolution. You had the end of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of what would eventually be Saudi Arabia, thanks to T.E. Lawrence uniting the Bedouin tribes in their assisted help of the British Empire and defeating the Ottoman Empire in the Middle Eastern Front. Now you also had two 
Two powers emerge on the world stage. You had Japan, who recently was flexing their muscles in their victory over the Russians in the Russo-Japanese Russo -Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, and as I mentioned before, their acquisition by military force of Korea and Manchuria. They had also found themselves on the right side of World War I in the Pacific, taking the few German possessions out there and being allowed to keep them at the Treaty of Versailles. The United States, however, was very reluctant to get into World War I. The United States had a very large German population and they shared the same belief about this war being just another quick war for a bit of land and they hoped for a quick German victory for the most part. Now the United States had been isolationist for quite some time and it's pretty easy to be isolationist when you're really the only relevant country at the time in the entire continent and you know supercontinent being North and South America. Um, but they had recently exited isolationism with the Spanish-American War of 1898 that didn't even last a year. Yellow journalism, Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer was the original newspaper tycoon who really who was the founder of the kind of skewed journalism you see today in mass. A ship exploded in Havana Harbor, a United States ship, the USS Maine. And Joseph Pulitzer famously said, you bring me the pictures, I'll bring you the war. And he coined his new newspapers, Remember the Maine, as a battle cry. And the United States went to war with Spain. And in this war they gained Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, establishing United States supremacy in the Pacific. So world power on the other side of the earth from, from Europe to be reckoned with. Power that was gaining its drive. Now, with this reluctance, Woodrow Wilson was President Woodrow Wilson, the United States president at the time. He was the he was the 28th president. Yes, 28th president. Um, he was secretly working with the Triple Entente. Um, and he was secretly supplying the British Empire and the French Empire with guns and other munitions and other supplies. It's really interesting though, is the British had a growing jealousy of the German Empire. The German Empire was writing 75% of the military literature in the world come the year 1900. Had an incredible army. And they were certainly flexing their muscles and they were in need of an empire. They had three large states in Africa. They had Togo, Cameroon, German East Africa, and German Southeast Africa, I believe. Um, areas including modern-day Rwanda, Tanzania, uh, Cameroon, etc. And the British had already planned some propaganda even before the war broke out to the point where a German visit earlier in the year in 1914 to Japan was met with almost this pity and sorrow from the Japanese saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so, so sorry, to their confusion. And Germany was not skilled in the way of propaganda as they were really just skilled in the, the methods of just war. And the British uh, wrote successful propaganda spinning the Germans as Huns who were bayoneting babies. And for those of you who don't know what a bayonet is, it's a blade that you secure on the end of your rifle for melee combat. And the Americans over time bought this propaganda, allowing Woodrow Wilson to pick one side. 
And that was the British Empire, French, and the Russians. Up until 1917, so wasn't met with much crossover with the Russians due to the Bolshevik Revolution. And then the Lusitania was sunk. A cruise liner. And on board were weapons that were going to be going to the British Empire. It was sunk by a German U-boat, so the United States declared war, and they found themselves in the war. The Great War, World War I. Now, the Western Front was predominantly a stalemate. The Eastern Front was a bit more interesting. Um, the Russians had a pretty easy time battling the Austro-Hungarians. However, they had a very difficult time battling the Germans, uh, particularly the F Prussian forces under the command of Field Marshal August von Mackensen. And this is in stark contrast to the Western Front that was on a stalemate where each side would take turns doing a 30-mile offensive until re-establishing a retrench. But this changed with a battalion by the name of, uh, under the command by the name of Charles Whittlesey. It was a great film done by the American news channel, or sorry, the American documentary channel A&E about this lost battalion. Charles Whittlesey was a major mission in the war, who previously was a New York contract lawyer. He ran a battalion of about 550 men, and he was instructed, he was assigned rather, to do an offensive into the Musargon Forest in France, with his flanks covered by one battalion of French hussars on each side. The French hussars did not advance at the same pace as the Americans, and they eventually retreated with the Americans being wedged in the middle of the German line. Now, against all odds, including being shelled by their own by being shelled by their own artillery due to a miscalculation, Charles Whittlesey successfully commanded his battalion to endure until relief was received. And this was the crack in the German line that six months that six weeks later rather had a ripple effect into their surrender. Now there were other factors involved, such as a British blockade of Germany, but in terms of the spark needed. This was Charles Whittlesey's Boston Battalion that did so. And this led to the Treaty of Versailles, this led to the stripping of Germany, of their military to 150,000 men, which is nothing. They weren't allowed access to the Ruhr, which is their uh, main, in Western Germany, their main site of resources, raw materials. Um, Austro-Hungarian Empire was disintegrated into a bunch of countries, including Austria, including Hungary, including Croatia, um, several other Slavic countries that would later on go to become Yugoslavia. The Ottoman Empire was dissolved, and pretty much the losing side lost bad. But there was no winners. There, there, were, there were no winners. In World War One, everyone seemed shell shocked. Everyone seemed to have post-traumatic stress disorder, both the losers and the winners. And why was that? Because this war was so all-encompassing and so bleak. Someone might not get their honor. Someone might not get their glory. War wasn't this thing that you did every five minutes. Now, war was something to be taken seriously because war could destroy us all. This was this is the, the time when. This belief was beginning to take shape. It took, it took a true global war, but it took a globally mechanized war. And the world's psyche hasn't recovered from it. The bleak nature of it. 
applying to one person, but therefore applying to everyone. Because everything's fractal. That person might die in the trench before he even does anything. That person might stand up in the trench and then get shot right then and there without having without having even fired a bullet. He could be blinded by mustard gas. He could be bombed by an airplane. First war, you have to worry about something above you consistently. Directly above you. Not a sniper with high ground, but truly above you. And the winners didn't feel whole. Now, some Americans stayed put in Europe. Most notably, Ernest Hemingway, who was a he was an ambulance driver in the Italian front from in 1917 to 1918. Went to Paris. And he lived with many great writers in Paris, including F. Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein. And they started to realize that a lot of real life wasn't reflecting narrative. Narrative was resolved. Narrative was the viewer's journey. Narrative followed formal syntax. Now, what is formal syntax? There's an introduction. You're introducing the main characters and introducing the story. There's a call to action or a call to adventure. There's a rise to a climax and a bunch of events leading up to one big reveal or event or tragedy or happening. There's the come down from the climax called the denouement. And then there's the conclusion. But with World War I in Europe being just truly devastated and so many soldiers being lost, there was this belief that maybe narrative wasn't reflecting real life anymore. Maybe there was no resolve. Maybe you didn't get a resolve. Maybe it was just that bleak for you because it was bleak for so many. So maybe formal syntax doesn't reflect real life. So you saw the abandonment of formal syntax. And what does that look like? That looks like stories abrupting, abruptly ending suddenly. Which is fascinating. Now, how does this relate to Trailers and Crescent? Well, let's set the stage, shall we, for Trailers and Crescent. It's a very simple play, despite it being a play that breaks Shakespeare's rules. You have two sides telling one story. You have the Trojans, of course, and you have the Greeks. The war is waged on for what's alluded to be about seven years, and people are kind of tired of it. The Greeks are growing dejected. Achilles is growing moody and not fighting. Agamemnon's frustrated that he hasn't captured the city yet. And Menelaus, Agamemnon is the king of all Greeks, and his brother Menelaus, the king of Sparta, is very frustrated that he hasn't conquered Troy to get his wife back, Helen of Sparta, who ran off with Paris, a prince of Troy, to become Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. And also on this Greek side, you have Odysseus, who is the main character of the Odyssey, who is the king of Ithaca, and his greatest skill set is politics. In this book, however, he goes by his alias in the Odyssey, Ulysses. Then you have Patroclus, Achilles' best friend and protege. And both of them are not fighting. Then you have Ajax, who is probably the second greatest warrior in the Greek encampment. He's more of a meat, big meathead type as opposed to an agile, precise type like Achilles. And on the Trojan side, you have King Priam, the king of Troy, his wife Hecuba the queen. 
You have his sons, Hector, the great icon of Troy, the hero, the virtuous warrior of great skill. You have Paris, the younger brother who's not so bothered that he's led so many of his countrymen into bloodshed over his affair. And then you have a character who you won't see in any other Trojan War portrayal, Troilus, the youngest. Troilus wants to be just like Hector, unlike Paris, who is very comfortable being Paris. Troilus wants to be Hector. He wants to be virtuous. He wants to be a great warrior. He wants to be a great husband, as Hector is an honorable husband. And he has his sights set on a wife, Cressida. Cressida is the daughter of a priest who is actually defected to the Greek encampment named Calchas. But she has an uncle named Pandarus, which is where the word pander comes from, by the way, who is working to secure a marriage vow between Troilus and Cressida. Now, Cressida is very resistant at first to Troilus and to Pandarus, but when the two leave the stage, Cressida has a soliloquy to the audience, and every soliloquy to an audience reveals the absolute truth because there's no one left to have a mask with. But she speaks about her having a mask and her hiding her true feelings for Troilus, for the sake of her survival, for someone with no father and someone with no husband, even in a city like Troy, this is very dangerous, even with an uncle like Pandarus. And then we switch back to the Greek encampment. There's growing frustration that Achilles is not fighting. And they're trying to think of various different ways as to why, without, without any success. Then the Trojans start to weigh, is it really worth it continuing this war? Or this bloodshed over one woman, this is mainly a question of Hector. But Troilus spins it that it's about honor and virtue and that they must not waver. Which Hector buys into and Paris completely agrees because he wants to keep getting laid with Helen. Then the idea emerges that they could end the war in single combat to prevent bloodshed of both sides countrymen. And so a messenger comes to the Greek encampment, and the Greeks accept. And the generals meet, and their initial knee-jerk reaction is like, okay, we'll get Achilles to fight Hector, who's our best warrior. And Ulysses objects, he says, actually, what we should do is we should choose Ajax. It's a win-win for us. If Ajax loses, we tell the Trojans, well, you didn't beat our best fighter. So we haven't really lost this war. Sorry. We're going to keep going. We're not going to honor the contract of ending the war over single combat. But if Achilles goes up and he loses, then the morale, the, the, whatever morale is left of this army is gone. And the reason why it's so close to that is the Trojans, quite frankly, were completely handing it to the Greeks. They had the best archers in the world at the time. They had a very strong city. All they had to do was defend, and they had a phenomenal fighting force led by their icon, Hector. So it was not going well for the Greeks. It would be much easier for them to just pack and leave. Then in Act 3, Pandarus does another bit of convincing to Cressida. And Cressida and Troilus confess their love for each other. And Pandarus performs a very interesting ceremony of promise of marriage with each other. And they consummate this promise by making love to each other all night. 
Then meanwhile in the Greek encampment, her father Calchas has negotiated with the Greek leadership to negotiate with the Trojan leadership to exchange a Trojan commander and prisoner of war for Calchas's daughter Cressida, so he may be reunited with her. Troy accepts. Cressida has no choice. There's a tearful goodbye. Troy makes her swear that she'll stay faithful multiple times, which she agrees. And earlier in the play, during their confession of love, she said, If I am not true, let all, all other lovers who are rendered untrue to be called false as Crescent. That was a paraphrase, by the way, not a direct read. Um, and she's, she's brought to the Greek encampment, and Odysseus, or Ulysses, rather, suggests that every commander kiss Cressida, and everyone does, with the exception of Ulysses. When it comes to his turn, he labels her an unvirtuous woman. Now, Cressida plays this off very well, because Cressida is now thrown into a situation where there's a threat of rape in every turn, because she's in a military encampment. So, she plays her cards very well in that situation, not feeding into any itch of torment or bullying that they could have towards her. Then the time for single combat comes, and the Greeks and Trojans join in the Phrygian plain, and Hector bests Ajax, but doesn't kill him because they're apparently they're cousins. Now, killing them might have just very well ended the war, so maybe not the smartest move if your cousin was willing to go to battle with you, and vice versa yourself, Hector. But during the time of the encampment, Troilus snuck in and saw Cressida being seduced by one of the Greeks. And she never kisses him, she never, she never makes love to him or anything, but she goes along with the seduction. And what's very interesting in the way she goes about it is it's like as if she's securing a, uh, a safety blanket from, from rape. Because if she tells the Greek encampment that she's promise to be married to a Trojan, that'll be a trigger for them just to indeed rape her, unfortunately. Very sad. And so her survival instinct kicks in and she latches on to this man, this Greek warrior. And Troilus sees this and is absolutely shattered. Troilus is a boy turning into a man now. Troilus is still wet behind the ears at the beginning of the play. He's still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He's a younger, younger man who is looking to become truly a man like his older brother Hector. And he began this journey and with a very dark path and seeing the seduction and return to seduction, but without any kissing or making love. So remember that. So the Trojans go back to Troy after Hector's victory in single combat. And they get ready for battle. And, and Troilus says to his brother Hector, "I'm going to kill as many men on the I'm going to kill as many men on the battlefield as you." But right before they depart for the field, Troilus is delivered a letter from Cressida, which he rips up and never reads because he's enraged. You see this this boy turning into a man, not because of not, be, not for the right reasons. Or maybe not, not necessarily not for the right reasons, but not for any good reasons. Very tragic reasons. But so far, they're unconfirmed. 
in an aside to the audience while Cressida is being seduced and she's counter-seducing, she almost alludes to the fact that she's holding everyone at bay. It's very interesting, it always appears as, she, as if she's buying time as opposed to actually going through with it. Which, is, which makes a lot of sense, honestly. But Troilus tells Hector now, trying to fully be a man, that he's going to kill as many people on the battlefield as Hector. It's a very, very bold claim. As with Achilles being inactive, Hector has proven himself the greatest warrior on the battlefield. Now the final, final act, Act 5, takes place all over the Phrygian plains that Troy sits upon. Hector finds Achilles unarmed and he lets him go and Achilles tells Hector that you're lucky to have found me unarmed. But Achilles gathers a band of warriors on horseback and they later find Hector on the battlefield unarmed because he's killed a man with golden armor and he took off his armor in order to try on the armor of the man he had just slain. But in this unfortunate timing he's found by Achilles. And you think there's going to be this grand single combat showdown finally, but no, Achilles just has his men along with himself just slaughter him. Slaughter an unarmed man. And now you have this boy, this younger brother of Hector, realizing that the tide of war has finally shifted against them. The morale of Troy will fall because their icon of strength and virtue has fallen. And he realizes that his nation might fall. And he realizes that he's lost everything. He's lost Cressida. He's lost his brother. He's lost his idol. And he's probably lost his country. And it ends abruptly. It ends bleakly. There's no resolve even in the tragedy. It just ends. That's it. Just like a gunshot in trench warfare. Just like being blinded by mustard gas. Just, oh, that's it. To wrap. Now it's really interesting amongst the plays that Shakespeare begins to break his rules. There's another play of this rule-breaking nature that is sort of the opposite counterbalance, like the, the counterbalance to Troilus and Cressida called Cymbeline, where there's a happy ending. It's it's actually a tragedy. It's labeled a tragedy, but really it's a, it's a romantic play. Because there's a hero who overcomes and, and has a victory. And the hero posthumous Leonatus has reason to believe that his love is cheated on him, just like Troilus, but there's no legitimate proof, and it turns out that she's true. And he doesn't get a chance to sort of condemn his cheated love his love who he believed to have cheated like Troilus does. It's later revealed to him that she say true. Now we we've never we never saw Cressida be be unfaithful to Troilus, and given the tide of war, the way it was going against the favor of the Greeks, 
it sounds to me like she was buying time. And that's what's really fascinating about this Shakespeare play. The tragedy isn't this outright tragedy. The tragedy is the never knowing, is the acting on the emotions. Troilus would have known if he hadn't ripped up the letter and not read it. We don't know what was in the letter. What I think Shakespeare was alluding to was a different kind of tragedy. A tragedy without any resolve or understanding, just left in the dark and cold. Now what's fascinating about these two plays, well it's not really fascinating, but in the context of my life, when I was in drama school, towards the end of the second term, second of three, the acting theory teacher announced that the piece that we'd be analyzing for the third term would either be Troilus and Cressida or Cymbeline. And I focused my studies on Troilus and Cressida, finding myself intoxicated with the bleak and dark nature of it. My self-destructive tendencies at the time, my addiction to self-destruction, was truly intoxicated on this bleak nature. And a day later, his teacher chose Troilus and Cressida over the happy ending, romantic adventure of Cymbeline. And I saw this tragedy reflect in my life when we studied it third term, my subconscious emerged in my external world as the fractal law tells. And the events that unfolded, while I might still be in England, my life would be very different. I'd probably still be acting, and quite honestly, I'd have a pro card as a fighter already. The world has not recovered from World War I. The world, the psyche, is in the last stage of dealing with its trauma. It's getting worse before it gets better. But we feel postmodernism breaking because we feel mankind itching to restore the cycle, to restore narrative in their life, because life is narrative. But we've been living a narrative of modernism, a narrative of nihilism, a narrative of everything ends bleakly anyway, we never had a chance in hell. And it's just not true. Man is screaming for an age of heroes. Man is screaming for a renaissance. And what contributes to the psyche Restoring a narrative of true syntax, of true cyclical nature of the hero's journey. Starts with each man assessing the narrative of his subconscious. And healing The greatest times of my life, the narrative of my subconscious reflected the hero's journey, reflected resolve, reflected endurance, reflected and reflected strength and staying true.
No. These are... These are virtues and practices that will heal yourself and therefore heal the world. The subconscious is a powerful thing. Which is why this podcast is paired with a podcast with our next guest, episode 17, the great Zenovia, who goes more and more in depth on the effects of the subconscious on Earth and what we can be striving for. So until you listen to part two with Zenobia, not necessarily a part two, but a true pair of podcasts, unintentional turned intentional. Or maybe just fate, truly. Take back the narrative in your life and heal. Until then, good night and good storms. Thank you.